following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. You are listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson, your host this morning on Behind the Lines Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra. So our guest this morning is Robert Pekin, and Rob's got quite an interesting story, which I'm sure he'll go into more detail about uh, when he's speaking. But uh, the short version of that is that he uh, lost his family's fourth generation farm as a result of the deregulation of the Australian dairy industry that took place in the 1990s, and he went into a bit of an exile. There was a lot of uh, emotions and grief around losing the farm, and he really felt there was just a need for more positive ways forward for farming in Australia. That feeling triggered a passion for creating a fairer food system for all farmers and for exploring ways to help people connect to those who grew and processed their food. He believed that this disconnection from that way of farming and the increasing impact of climate change meant a solution was urgency needed, urgently needed. And the result of that was Food Connect, a social enterprise that Robert and his partner Emma Kate, a few local farmers and a group of motivated mums, kick-started in 2005 using the principles of community-supported agriculture. And I'm sure Rob will be telling us a lot about that as well. So welcome to the show, Rob. It's wonderful to have you here this morning. Scotty and I are really looking forward to talking to you and, and hearing all about your journey. Thank you and wonderful to be on the show with you uh, this morning. I hope things are all right down in Canberra in this unusual times. Yes, very unusual times. We're very lucky. We, uh, we're allowed to continue broadcasting, which was, um, you know, we weren't sure if that was going to happen, but, um, you know, and all good things. We're still able to come into the studio and do live shows with uh, people like yourself. So we've been very fortunate that way. And we've got beautiful weather here at the moment, so no complaints from us. Fabulous, fabulous to hear. Yeah, so so where are, where are you speaking to us from, Rob? So I'm speaking to you from the Food Connect shed in um, downtown Salisbury, uh, about five miles the crow flies from the CBD of Brisbane. Wonderful. Um, just and we do have so listeners fast. in the UK, so they're probably thinking for a minute, oh. hang on, Salisbury. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and there's another Salisbury in Adelaide too. So oh. no, this is this is the one um, a little. So it's an old industrial suburb that was sort of um, used in the. Um, uh, World War Two as an industrial, uh, sorry, as a um, uh, as a military um, uh, a military zone um, by the US, and then after World War Two, this little area was converted into uh, into you know mainstream industry. Wow, what a um, history! Well, hopefully, it's got some great old military sheds and things you can repurpose. It has, yeah, no, that's what we're there. Well, that's what the Food Connect shed is. It's one oh, of those okay. old military yeah, sheds. I just took a while exactly to guess that, there. Repurposed. <laughs> I think there's a funkier term they use these days for um, upcycled or something. <laughs> ups- no, there's even a f- in the in the um, in the uh, um, commercial uh, real estate language they call it something else, but um, I can't remember right now what it is. But it's become funky to now, you know, to retrofit or upcycle or you know reuse, repurpose um, old industrial buildings. Mm-hmm. A, what a great uh, thing a, to take something that was used in destruction and turn it into something that's now in a holistic production model. Totally, totally. That's exactly right. Yeah, it's a it's a, a great way of um, uh, of of switching people, you know, from that, that what it was previous what it was built for to now something that's much more about um, uh, peace and harmony and um, food for everyone. Mm. Now I know, Rob, you've 
probably told your story um, a gazillion times at this point, but a lot of our listeners won't be familiar with it. Would you be able to tell us a little bit of your background about your journey onto um, your family dairy farm and then your journey away from that to what's become Food Connect? Yeah, sure. So it, it basically, I mean, I'm, I'm born and bred on the dairy on, the, on that farm in Western Victoria, uh, not far from Colac. Um, and uh, being the oldest of nine siblings, when um, I got the earliest opportunity to, uh, uh, I, I mean, I was keen on the farming, but um, obviously being the oldest, there was a fair few kids left to support, so there wasn't much room um, for uh, for a paid employee. So I left and become a, a, an aircraft maintenance engineer in the the Royal Australian Navy for quite a few years, um, which was fantastic for me to get out and um, see the world and mix with um, mix with a whole bunch of people who I didn't really sort of get to, uh, uh, you know, form relationships with, um, you know, being from a, a little country dairy, dairy uh, you know, agricultural zone in Western Victoria. And then um, left the Navy in um, the late 80s um, after 11 years, and did a few things, um, and then eventually mum and dad, because they had an employee on the farm, and none of the other eight siblings wanted to take on the farm. Or well, there was two still left uh, at school, um, my youngest siblings, Anthony and, um, and Jennifer, and I went, um, and they uh, an opening come up where their full-time dairy um, pan, who was living in the other house on the property, left, and uh, mum and dad rang me and said, would I be interested in uh, share farming? And... Um, I accepted that offer and come down and um, and got right into it. I really, really was um, really enthusiastic, obviously born and bred on the farm. I did a lot of the chores and did a lot of the sort of, you know, knew a lot of the doing side of things, but I didn't know a lot about the actual, you know, um, the actual, you know, the nuts and bolts in terms of the strategic stuff and, you know, uh, the budgeting and all that sort of stuff. So it was a rapid learning curve. And then after three years, my father and I, Sort of disagreed on a few things. Um, I I had a I, I was you know in the first six months I suppose I was pretty naive and uh, committed to a, a more industrial dairy farming model and wanted to you know grow the farm and and uh, you know milk 500 cows take it from 200 to 500 and be like all the other um, you know bigger farmers in the area. Um, but um, after about six to 12 months, I started to bump into a couple of other farmers who were thinking very very differently. Um, and that, uh, and there's a couple of events that I won't go into now, but um, caused me to sort of shift my thinking around what I wanted to do on that farm. So I started to, you know, use seaweed, seaweed and trial various sort of um, what we've now known as now know as regenerative or, or organic practices on the farm. So this is back in the early 90s. And then um, Dad and I come to blows, and uh, Dad said, uh, "Well, if you you know if you want to farm that way, you're going to have to buy the whole farm off me." And I you know, accepted the offer and uh, in all the arrogance of an older son said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll do that. And I bought it at a, at a fairly high uh, time in the dairy industry. Prices were pretty good and, and the last couple of seasons have been fantastic. So um, I was, um, you know, pretty, um, right, you know, pretty keen and, and, um, uh, and then the first year of my farm ownership, we went into milk prices declined by 20%. Um, and we went into a snap drought at the end of a very, very, very wet winter. And I was looking, uh, you know, a few of my um, budget um, forecasts weren't uh, coming true. And uh, and then the following year we didn't get a drought, we didn't get a um, the autumn break like we normally did. 
Uh, milk prices dropped another 5%, um, and then the following year, another sort of very, very dry autumn, um, which in Victoria is pretty catastrophic for a calving. My calving was, was through, you know, March, April into, um, you know, late August, I suppose, was the calving pattern. Um, so it was very, very well spread, and uh, just basically after another three years of farm ownership, I was... I was um, I was looking 310 by myself uh, a couple of people wow. died on the farm with me. It was it was it was one of those times where I just worked really hard and um, you know uh, was pretty determined to stick at it and stay on the farm despite uh, you know the financial situation, despite a few other things. I was it was performing really well financially, but the debt to equity ratio was so bad that um, eventually the bank gave me that or they sent me a letter it's a very funny story they sent me a letter just a one-page letter saying that 25% um, of farmers of our farmer clients in your circumstances um, uh, well 75% will go out of business it basically said and because of that um, the overdraft that you've drawn out this is in February which is my worst cash flow period of the year um, they said basically you're gonna have to pay back all that that um, Overdraft um, um, right away, and uh, I uh, went in and saw the bank manager and said, you know, what's this all about? You know, you know, it's the worst time of the year. Um, and uh, he said, well, did you read the letter? And I said, yeah, I read the letter. And uh, um, it said 70, only 75%. And I, I said, I believe I'm in the 25% that will survive and get through. And they said, no, that's not that's not what the letter's saying. The letter's saying because 75% will go out, you either pay that back or we resume the farm. So. So then I sold 100 head of cows uh, to pay back that overdraft, which severely limited my um, income stream, but um, uh, went ahead and did that and uh, raised yeah, raised enough money to, to, to get out of that trick, trick, tricky situation, hoping we would get another autumn break and I'd um, you know see a good year and unfortunately milk prices dropped another 10% and we didn't get the autumn break and by August of that year I was... Well, I'd gone bad. Um, I went and sort of seen the psychologist for the first time, and he said, "You're in not only you're in physically bad shape, but you're mentally and financially ruined. So, you know, you need to you need to seriously think about things." And, and a couple of events, which I won't go into, um, you know, around depression and a few other things, um, made me realise that I needed to just give up on that whole thing and um, walk away and start life again. And uh, that's and, and you know. When you're in this, you know, I've probably been probably half mad for um, uh, eight to 12 months anyway, uh, just working, um, you know, in, in incredible hours and uh, and uh, you know, in that, in that um, fighting spirit, uh, that stoic, you know, farmer tradition of just never giving up until it was it was all too late and um, unfortunately lost the whole thing. So. Yeah, so I walked away from the farm with 90 grand of debt and nothing, absolutely nothing to my name. And I think there's quite a, a famous topic. picture of what you left the farm with. There's like an old uh, ute <laughs> and a few things on the back in the tray and that was about it, right? That was about it, that's right, yeah. Yeah, a bookcase and some books and um, a few other things that I um, uh, didn't get time to read <laughs> um, whilst I was dairy farming and, uh, um, yeah, that was it. So it was a very, very sad and cathartic ending to my um, to my. You know, dream, uh, and all the guilt that's wrapped up around how you, you know, uh, being a, a Catholic, you know, an ex-Catholic, and 
it's just all of that stuff wrapped up around you're a complete failure. Uh, really left me sort of fairly beaten up and busted and, and devastated. Um, so, uh, um, but I think you, you, know? you, you gave a really wonderful example on one of the lectures I listened to you. Um, it wasn't the TED Talk. It was another one you gave, I think, at Griffith University. And you talked about a moment um, where you had an epiphany in the shower. And yes, there was yes, a real sense right. of yeah. um, you had to lose that much in order to gain what you've gained now. Yeah, that's very true. I um, uh, I um, had this uh, momentous event one night and um, uh, where I realised I needed to give it up. And um, and then went into two weeks of pretty big depression and a couple of mates of mine said, why don't we go out for dinner and say, you know, and... Um, and I hadn't been and seen anyone. One of their wives come up to the farm and said, you know, we want to really take you out for dinner. And uh, and so that night, after two weeks, was the first time I'd had a shower. Um, and uh, I just watched all this dirt going down. You know, it's a shower where you're in a bath and you're watching and the, and the, the sinkholes down the other end and watched all of this mud and, and cow manure and everything washed down. And I <laughs> saw um, for the first time that I could actually start life again, start life afresh. You know, I was, it was almost symbolic of me flushing away um, all the past and that gave me a glimpse of, of what the future could be. I wouldn't be burdened by all of the things that I owned or, you know, the bank owned um, and all of those other responsibilities I could actually, uh, yeah, completely, completely start again. And I uh, went to the pub that night and was very, very happy and everyone was sort of going, wow, this is weird, you know, he's... <laughs> He's come out of this really quickly, but of course, you know, anyone with depression or goes through those sort of circumstances knows that it's a, it's, it's, uh, it swings and roundabouts. So the, the pendulum, you go from euphoric moments to glimpses of insights to just utter, utter despair and utter, you know, failure or thinking you're a failure. Mm. But I think you know, for a lot of people, there, there is a moment they could probably chalk as their beginning of the turn of the tide. And from listening to you, that sounded to me like there was something going on in your subconscious there that knew there was a new beginning just ahead. Yeah, definitely. That's right. Yeah. It, it, I'd reached the bottom, um, the bottom of the bottom, and uh, um, and there was only one way from there on. Um, you know, after a, a few other things that I attempted to do, but um, wasn't wasn't um, brave enough to carry through. So uh, yeah, so it was the, the absolute bottom. Yeah, and then, so then, sorry, Scotty, oh, you go ahead, uh, jump in there. G'day, Rob. So then you, Thanks, you, you drove your ute across Bass Strait, I suppose. and um... well, On a ferry, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> what did you find when you got to Tasmania? Yeah, so I, um, well, before, I actually come back and maybe six months later to get the old Dodge ute that my brother um, stored away for me. Um, no, I, um, I camped uh, on that very first night. I camped at the on the, the most northern part of Tasmania or, or Devonport to wave goodbye to the farm, you know, across the Bass Strait and say my final goodbyes. And um, and I was just setting up camp and um, out of the sort of um, the twilight there in Tasmania, um, a, a fairly big Aboriginal fellow with a with a hat and neatly dressed in a ranger's uniform approached me and said, hey, mate, you can't camp here. This is, this is our land. And uh, I looked up at him and sort of he was bearded and he was fairly... Um, intimidating and I said oh sorry mate you know I had no idea um, and then um, he proceeded to just have a bit of a chat to me and um, uh, I had this really big conversation where he listened to my whole story 
and uh, and we had a couple of funny moments where um, you know I told him how you know there was no no Aboriginals left in Tasmania. I was taught that at school. You know what he how did you end up being here? And he said we've been here all along, mate. And we had one of those uh, wonderful conversations where um, um, we formed a bit of a, a kinship, and he showed me a few things that I needed to do if I was to respectfully walk in Tasmania, and he welcomed me to Tasmania, um, and uh, um, uh, and then said you can camp down just off the reserve site, but um, you know where you'll be looked after. The, the elders will look after you down there, and I camped down there and woke up the next morning, and uh, with this unbelievable insight that my pain and suffering after losing the farm after four generations was nothing compared to the 2,000 generations of, you know, custodianship and deep connection to the land that they had. And I had a pretty, you know, I had a really deep connection to my farm, you know, it was two volcanoes and um, did a lot of research uh, on, on, on my property, but it was nothing compared to to their connection and that was where I realised that what I was crying over and what I was really feeling pretty bad for and pretty busted up about was, was really spilt milk, spilt milk um, in comparison and to... And literally spilt milk. Literally spilt milk, <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so that was that was where I... You know, one of those moments as a white fellow, you go, holy shit, you know, I thought I knew everything mm. and, uh, and you're sort of left with this space that says, you know, well, actually, you, you know... The more you know that old saying about the more you find out, the more you realise you yeah, don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I was left with one of those, you know, absolutely uh, catalyzing moments in my life where I went, "Holy shit! What else don't I know about Indigenous people? What else don't I know about land ownership, connection, all of those sort of things that um, that I was, you know, tearing myself up about." Well, there's something we talk about a lot on the show, and that's resilience. And, you know, just the nature of resilience and um, how people come back from incredible brinks with resilience. And, you know, you had that moment where you were talking to this Aboriginal fellow. And I think in one of the other um, lectures I heard you mention, he said that um, his people were actually quite savvy, quite clever. And they managed to outwit a lot of the actions of the people that were trying to commit genocide against them. And that's why they're still in Tasmania. So there's, right. there's a whole study, I think it was Charles Darwin was actually um, in some ways indirectly responsible for that genocide in Tasmania, which is very concerning. Yes, yeah, no, he was. He was. We, he, he laughed when I said to him about the black line and he said, oh, the old fellows tell, you know, the stories about that black line. And, uh, you know, sure, there were some few people caught up in it, but nothing to the um, to the extent of what we were taught at school. So it was a very enlightening conversation, um, you could say it. Um, you know, and it still, you know, burns in my memory and in my um, a lot of a lot of my actions stem from that very moment the next morning when I had that had that um, uh, realization, that insight. Mm. So you wound up uh, you wound up in the food sector again. Yes, well, I suppose uh, when I left the farm, being as pig-headed, and, and when I lost the farm, I. I resolved that I was going to do something about it. I wasn't going to just, um, you know, let, you know, just slip away and into the quietly into the night. I really um, felt, and because because it wasn't just me. You know, there was a couple of other farmers who committed suicide. There was a lot of social upheaval. Um, quite a few um, events had happened in that last eight to twelve months where deregulation was really hitting in. There was lots of sort of 
animosity, I suppose. Uh, there was division amongst the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria where, you know, the leadership of UDV were advocating for this deregulation and there was a lot of other people who'd seen the past, you know, 20 or um, well, 15 years, I suppose, of the decline of the co the cooperatives um, where they'd become demutualised and eventually corporatised and we were going to see... And, and it was all, you know, it was all plain and evident to those who opened their eyes. Um, but on the other side of the coin, there was this big movement that unless cooperatives brought in corporate types and got big investment dollars, they were never going to be able to compete on the global food stage. So, um, so it was it was uh, that last eighteen months, I suppose, and getting involved in the politics and what was going on. Um, left when I left the farm, that was one of the things I thought. Well, maybe I can do something about it. I was working closely with seven or eight farmers who are all sort of either organic or converting to organic. This is early oh, mid-90s, so there wasn't a lot of organic farmers. Um, and we were, uh, we were exploring all sorts of ideas in that last six months of my um, you know, tenureship on the farm. So, uh, so when I left the farm, I had a lot of ideas and I had a lot of, there was a lot of think, thinking and a lot of political and social sort of um, awareness had become... Um, had, had come before me um, that I was pretty keen to to sift through and see if um, see if I could be part of the solution. Hmm. Well, I think you mentioned that um, that was one of the reasons that your dad and, and you went separate ways, where you wanted to um, transition the farm in, in, into organic, and he was more of a conventional farmer. Yeah, he was. He wasn't totally conventional. He did have some um, good ideas, uh, but yes, that that. I mean, that old guard, um, you know, um, and you still see it today, actually, I would say that probably the age of Australian farmers is the single biggest reason why we don't have sustainable farming practice in Australia. You know, they're just, they just are resistant to change. And, and, and it was my, it's no fault of my father. They were just, they were at that age where um, they'd been, you know, told for probably 30 or 40 years to go down this line of superphosphate and chemical companies and all of that had, had just surrounded them and their mentality so much that there was no other way. And they were wedded to that system. They were on this treadmill that, that for an older person to think about how do I get off this treadmill? How do I get a, a you know, how do I, you know, how do I do that is a really big mental leap for a lot of farmers. Um, so it's no fault of farmers and, and, and obviously the concentration of, of um, supermarkets and all of that pressure made it financially uh, really difficult because you were just up against, you were just working so hard to keep the farm viable that you never had a real opportunity to um, to financially free yourself up so you could actually put put in place some some other uh, methodologies um, and take a bit of a financial hit because as we know with with anyone in transition to regenerative organic agriculture, you know, there's, there's three to five years of, of, um, of declining, you know, declining yields to get your soils off that, off that chemical drug um, and where there's biodiversity and microbial life and all, that, all those other things. And back in those days, there, there was hardly any... There was nothing like today's, you know, you, you, you only have to jump on, you know, there's so many courses on Regen Ag and there's so mm. many farmers who have proven that you can farm and get yields uh, commensurate with industrial models, but your costs are so much better or so much cheaper as a result of switching across. So um, it was, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, 
it, uh, is, it, is a, it still is a challenge, um, and it, you know, as I always say, it's the it's the you know the one acre paddock between the ears is the biggest <laughs> is the biggest challenge. Yeah, yeah. So what was it that made you stick with food? I mean, you could have gone and oh, done community energy or made a difference in some other way, you know, because this whole food. Yeah, sector. I, I felt like, um, and the, and you know, at the time there was obviously the uh, the rise of. Um, uh, uh, climate change, you know, people saying, you know, climate change is real and we need to do something about it. And there was uh, NGOs advocating for, you know, solar and, and um, different things. And I sort of felt that food was this, uh, I mean, I hadn't done a lot of research back then, but I had an inkling that food was a, actually had a bigger part to play in a lot of the, um, the, the negative impacts that the world was suffering from. And... Um, and I, my, I'm a very systems, being an, an aircraft engineer, I had a, a very systems mind. I really think uh, about all of the things that contribute to, um, uh, or, you know, I, I sort of think uh, across disciplines about, and particularly in the Navy, in the Navy they train you to be not only hydraulics but electronics, but uh, airframes and engines. So you've got this cross sort of skill where you really understand how a, how a helicopter or, or an aeroplane flies, including all the theory around that. So, so I, I felt that food was one of those more complex. It wasn't as simple as just you know getting rid of a, a coal-based power plant and putting in place a solar or a wind generator. This food is is much more complex. And for me, I really value all my faculties being challenged. I, I really. I love, and particularly when I went, when I got to Tasmania after about six months, I, I started off my own market garden down there, and just the just the the um, uh, the challenge of farming organically in a market garden, growing sequentially for a customer base through the community supported agriculture model, I relished in that that that. It was so stimulating both socially, it was very stimulating intellectually, and it was very stimulating culturally because of that experience I had with that Indigenous person around this whole concept of land ownership versus land custodianship. And I was really, uh, I suppose, testing and seeing what was out there in whatever models that were deployed around the world that could contribute to something that was the reverse of all the things that I felt the impact on in my dairy days and my father and all the other all the other so I really um, I, I really explored and I read a massive amount of books from Schumacher Smalley Beautiful to um, Ricardo Semler's Maverick and the Seven Day Weekend and all you know quite a few of Steiner's books um, as complex and hard as they are to read um, you do sometimes uh, just all of that reading, you know, Walden, um, uh, uh, the, the bloke, the, um, the knee, um, uh, the two husband and wife couple that were professors in New York and went up to Vermont and started farming. Um, the Good Life, the Good Life series. Scott and Helen Nearing, um, you know, and then Alan Chadwick and um, uh, all of these pioneering organic thinkers. Um, uh, and then later on, you know, uh, the work of Jane um, Jane, um, what's her name from um, the, the the transport? What's her name, Jane? Um, oh, quite a few, you know. And then um, the, the work of the Economist in New Zealand. Uh, there's quite a few female activists. So, I thought so, so were, were some of the books that you took in bush with you? Were these some of the books yes. that you were, yes. um, you know, in in the bush absorbing all of this fabulous information and having um, sort of that uh, renewed mindset? 
That's right. Yeah, like Critical Path from Buckminster Fuller. It was one of the books that I took me took with me. I wasn't writing to Jane Jacobs, that's her name, um, but I certainly uh, had on my bookshelf next to my bed in, in the in the dairy in the dairying days quite a few. Because uh, once you take that organic pathway, once you take this different pathway, and I had an epiphany early on in the dairy farming days of of um, seeing my farm through my cow's eyes. Uh, that opened up for me a whole world that uh, that um, that was just brand new and and resonated with me at a values level. So yes, yeah, so I had probably I don't know there might have been 15 kilos of books that I took with me on that um, on that uh, uh, you know that bush sojourn in sojourn in Tasmania and they were the books that I just devoured and read. And then any time I pop poke my head out. Um, into normal civilization, I'd go to a bookshop and would exchange books and grab another one, and then I bumped into a biodynamic farmer down near Hobart, and uh, he had all of Steiner's, you know, about twenty of Steiner's books, and I probably read four or five of them. Uh, it was it was it was a, a very rich um, and uh, philosophically stimulating time for me. Now, I believe it was um, Steiner, um, some of the economic ideas of Steiner that inspired you, and that that um, ties right into the community-supported agriculture model, right? Definitely, yeah, yeah. yeah the um, uh, the Steiner, or the, it was uh, a mix of Schumacher's, the Schumacher Association in the US and the Anthroposophical Association in the US, who were very, you know, into reading books and writing books and having study groups. There was nothing really practically they were doing that re- that that. Um, Operationalized, I suppose, a, a, a number of the philosophies that were in these books um, and in these writings. So um, those two societies got together, and uh, after about three years, come up with this model called community-supported agriculture. Um, and uh, that was the, you know, and I read uh, they call the the, um, the Bible of CSAs um, called um, towards towards a community-supported agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember. I'm looking at my bookshelf as I talk to sort of, uh, um, but it was it was it was full of real practical information on how to start a CSA, how to have that core group, how to you know design your weekly boxes and all sorts of things. So that book, plus all sorts of diagrams on how to talk about the seasonal, you know, the seasons, um, uh, and um, you know that deep philosophical understanding that um, which was another epiphany for me because in the early cooperative days of which my father and my grandfather are a part of those uh, the one thing they forgot and there's a great book by called the the democracy um, principle by an Australian researcher who wrote about all this sort of stuff and he wrote to me years later saying the one thing they forgot in those early days, and even the Roachdale model days, was having a relationship with the eater, with the mm. end consumer of whatever product or service a cooperative had invented. And um, and CSA, you know, really had, had a, you know, was very very um, balanced in um, the eaters had equal participation and responsibility and accountability as what uh, uh, um, as the farmer did in this in this way of operating so that was fairly um fundamental and provided a you know a bedrock for what i was you know what i was um thinking uh, well I, that that realization hadn't entered my thought about the uh, you know the eater being as equally as important 
and then later on when I set up Food Connect, it, it was also, if you read a lot of um, uh, Steiner's stuff around the threefold social economy, the employee is also equally treated. You know, they're there to unfold their greater human potential um, as much as they're there to do a, you know, um, a J-O-B. So, um, so there's a lot of sort of very rich understandings and thinkings that's framed or, or, or forged or formed my, um, you know, how I operate Food Connect and how we've sort of gone about things over, over the years. Mm. Well, that, that's, I think, the, the model that any sustainable system works with. It's, it's a holistic system and whole being spelt H-O-L-E as well as H-O-L. So it's it's that um, sense that everything everything is a part of the whole, and your um, your journey I think was also making um, or establishing several CSAs um, around the state as well before you created Food Connect as it is now. That, that, yeah, that's right. After I come um, uh, away from Tasmania and uh, left that CSA in the hands of Bob and Joy, I um, um, a couple of mates in Victoria said, "Can you set one of them up for us? Because we'd want to." keep our sons on the farm and uh, we think it's a great idea so so I basically for the next four or five years uh, journeyed across Australia helping farmers um, set up these uh, these CSAs um, and in the meantime I was bumping into um, some of the early CSAs from the 1980s that had been in Australia that no one really knew about so I, I went to all I went to five of those original seven CSAs um, to you know what went wrong what 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 worked um, to sort of unpack uh, and and contextualise for an Australian setting what could something, you know, in, in order to scale, because I was really interested in, I wasn't really interested in something that was, um, uh, that was just going to do a little bit. I really wanted something that would transform Australian agriculture. And I, so I was very keen to look at all the, all the, all the failings and then, design the Food Connect model as a way that could be replicated anywhere and basically, you know, just do away with all supermarkets mm. forever. So for our listeners that aren't familiar with the CSA model, the Community Supported Agriculture model, would you be able to walk us through what that looks like? Yeah, sure. So fundamentally, a Community Supported Agriculture model, or CSA as it's known, is a, um, uh, is a food distribution system where the eaters pay in advance and there's seven principles um, to a CSA. So one is you must take what the farmer grows, another one is you must um, uh, commit um, and, uh, you know, you can commit for a season financially or you can commit for a year or you can commit to four weeks, whatever it is in the model. Um, You must participate in supporting that farmer. So a farmer wants to grow really great food probably not the best person or persons to actually run community sessions or facilitate, you know, financial arrangements or do the marketing or do whatever else is needed to support that, that farming um, entity. So, uh, so there's a lot of participation asked in a CSA, um, which is, which is a, a really great thing. Um, and then the, the, you know, so, so there's a lot of um, workshops on on establishing how is this food system going to run and how are we going to support that farmer. And then it's all wrapped up with um, basically intent in, in biodynamic language. It's not contracts. They don't believe in contracts. Contracts is, is a form of power, whereas um, intent is, is around a gentleman's agreement, you know, a, a fundamental human agreement between two people of integrity and ethics to 
to do whatever they promised they were they were going to do. And if you can't do it, obviously, you ring them up or you contact me and say, I'm, you know, whatever, you know, it's not going to work. Well, this isn't working. So it's an iterative process um, that uh, um, that supports one farmer to grow food for their for their local community and for that community to financially and in other ways support that farmer. So this basically would totally remove the the challenge that you had on the dairy farm in which you were subject to someone else setting milk prices and you Correct. were basically yeah, at yeah, their so mercy. So you've removed that forces. completely from the equation. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, this is the true cost. So that's another principle of CSA. The costing has to be true cost. Um, so not, a, you know, a, um, a totally ambiguous market-based price setting. It's very much around, uh, well, what... What financially is going to support this this farm and the farmers and the farming family in a way where they become fully human and, and unfold their destiny for a better world? Um, and so it might mean, you know, you know, it, it includes sitting down with a farmer and saying, okay, this is all the produce you want to sell and these are the things you want to spend that money on. You want to spend it on, you know, study. Uh, you know, good um, doing com- community service. You want to, um, you know, so all of those things are built into the true cost, including all of the um, externalities. You know, in terms of you know what we need to do to remediate the soil or keep the soil maintained in a healthy and vital uh, way. Um, um, how do we make sure that the food? is as nutritious as it possibly can. Um, so that means that the customer base has to be very, very close and very connected to eating that food or coming out and helping with the harvest. So, you know, a harvest on that CSA in Tasmania, the harvest was held every um, every Friday morning and by Friday afternoon, everyone had that produce in their fridge and then the process would repeat, which is the same as our Food Connect operates. We order off all the farmers on a Friday and... Uh, the produce arrives uh, Monday and Tuesday morning and it's delivered Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday and then, you know, it's Groundhog Day again and we all go back uh, <laughs> to doing the same thing except the only thing that changes is the seasons. That's right. Mm-hmm. So, you, um, you, yeah, we wound up in Brisbane somehow. What's the difference between the CSA that you just described and the CSA that's going on at Food Connect? Yeah, well, one of the... Um, uh, things that I realised during those uh, conversations with those CSAs, early CSAs that had failed, was um, the Australian context was very different from the American or the European context for setting up a CSA. We didn't have those big populations, um, and uh, we had um, primarily a lot of farmers who were, who were quite a while quite a way away from those capital cities, those high populations. Um, and I felt we could also leapfrog some of the issues that those early CSAs, those, you know, probably there was probably the maybe um, one to 2,000 CSAs in America at the time, and they were reaching, um, or they were plateauing out in numbers because of scarcity mentality. Um, and I felt we could put together a multi-farmer CSA here in Brisbane. And this was this was not something I invented. There was a couple of farmers who come to me and said, you know, you go out there and you do all these talks about how you grew, you know, 70, 60 to 70 things in Tasmania weekly for sequential harvest, and you'd like a lot more farmers to be able to, you know, grow like that. Uh, we don't think that that's right. We think that that's, that's ludicrous, actually, and uh, probably... Um, a better way of going about it would be to find, you know, 20 or 30 farmers who grow all the things you need, you know, five or six or seven lines, and we all work together. 
and uh, when that and I originally had sort of when a few farmers said that to me, and I sort of went, "Ah, oh, what's wrong with you? You know, can't, you know, because I was doing a lot of reading of these really amazing. And you, and you, they're still around in Australia and New Zealand and in America. These gun farmers gen, gen, tend to be generally very male, and they're growing. You know, they're really pushing themselves to the limit. Um, and uh, so I was in that mould of, of, you know, come on, let's 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 show, you know, the old male ego coming out and how many bloody lettuces can I grow per square metre and blah, 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 blah. Whereas when these farmers said that to me, later on I realised that actually that was a common sense model. It was a much easier pathway for farmers to participate in something together and therefore we could break down these ideas of competition and break down and they could work together and support each other in an ecosystem um, particularly in horticulture, where um, a lot of farmers are pitted against each other. In dairy farming land, we're very much, uh, because we're coming out of the cooperative mould, we very much share a lot of our how we farm um, together, whereas in the veggie world, um, that was not the, the normal practice. So, so that idea of putting together a multi-farmer model of supporting farmers from further out to participate in something or other, rather than you know a close you know, 20 or 30k distance from the farm um, to the customer base, I could uh, I could put something on the ground in Australia that was a solution for a broader group of farmers and therefore we could have, um, you know, bigger impact over time by bringing those farmers into something or other that wasn't about certification, it wasn't about being a hardcore, you know, organic farmer or, you know, a, a gun farmer, it was more about unfolding or, or letting them have agency over how they wanted to farm and realise inside of them what inspires them about farming and go on a, a journey uh, with Food Connect because it was very much a project back when we started it in 2004. Um, so I sort of felt like that, that idea of, well, we're on a project, we, need, we really need a big group of people to be on board this if it was, if it's, if it's to have, you know, the, the resilience and the success, and also a much broader subset of minds giving input to how we do Food Connect over the years. So I was very open to, um, I wasn't the one who was had all the knowledge. It was, you know, even the city cousin model, the distribution model, that wasn't invented by me. That was invented by a bunch of our committed mums who said, after two or three weeks of picking up from the farm where it was all being packed, said, this has got you know, it's got hairs on it. Um, uh, if you get it to our place in Brisbane, we'll invite all our friends to our place to pick up the boxes from. And that was like, wow, what a simple idea to a, you know, to to what we how we we're trying to do it beforehand. Um, so um, pretty much, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, the the Food Connect, um, how it's evolved over time has had. Um, not a lot to do with me, even though people, you know, familiarise Food Connect with me. It's been due to all the people who have had, you know, ideas. You know, mother is, what's um, uh, the saying about being the mother invention? Um, you know, uh, even when we got to the, it, shed, uh, the you know, necessity is the mother of invention. Necessity is the mother of invention. Mm. Yeah, we just had so many people committed to the values and what we were trying to do without much clue on how we're actually going to do it, but a, uh, apart from a deep philosophical commitment to we wanted to do something that wasn't about ownership, it wasn't about... Um, uh, um, the, it wasn't about the capital model, it was based on food. Food, food is a, is a um, human right. It's not a market-based commodity. 
farmers needed to be treated fairly in that process. And indeed, everyone, the packers, the transport drivers, um, whoever else is involved in practically getting that food from the farm to the, um, to the, to the fridge. So it, it really, it, it, it drew a lot of people in on, on, well, we're all a part of sort of creating this together. Um, and I think that's been a big part of the strength, and particularly the community. You know, there's a couple of times where we've reached financial, you know, head, you know headwinds, and uh, we've sort of just sent an email to all of our customers. I remember in the early days when we moved from a, a really cheap, uh, busted-up warehouse to a, you know, to a reasonable warehouse, which is now the Food Connect Shed, and uh, we needed $28,000 in bond, which we didn't have. I had $28,000 in cash for the first three months of rent, but I didn't have the bond. And um, the bank said no. Nah. And so I basically put it out to, the, to our subscriber base. I said, good news, we found a new warehouse, bad news, we haven't got the $28,000 in bond. And uh, I said, who would be committed to funding that $28,000? And then that would be drawn down after 12 months in food subscriptions. And uh, within two weeks, we had $35,000 in the wow. bank. So that was like and, a... And, uh, Sort of like a GoFundMe campaign yeah. or something? That's right. In the early days, before crowdfunding, and, you know, before, this is obviously before Facebook and you know, social media things. So it was, you know, this is, um, uh, this was, and it's so inspiring and so um, connecting in terms of people going, yeah, we're going to support this and we're going to support this financially and take a bit of a risk at the same time. But, um, uh, but you know, that commitment um, inspires us and our farmers to never let them down. Um, and probably, you know, that, that, that healthy tension between accountability and commitment is, is, is uh, you know, has been another one of our strengths. Mm. So I think um, I saw on your website that you're working with about 80 farmers or 80 farming families? Yep. Yeah, that's about right. Over the, over the, um, the sort of uh, the, the seasons here at, um, in southeast Queensland, we've got, yeah, there's about... And, and in, increasingly, uh, these younger um, farmers who are farming from with, either within the Brisbane surrounds or the peri-urban area or not far out, there's quite a, you know, there's, there's 10 to 15 young farmers who are becoming our core farmers. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, so then there's another 40-odd, 40, 40 or 50 makers um, uh, on top of those uh, 80. I think the number is about 160 farmers wow. and makers now wow. who... Uh, I mean, it's it's so so exciting to see because when I first set up Food Connect, no one was thinking about, you know, even local garlic wasn't. It was, you know, we were all importing this bleached thing from China. Um, uh, you know, no one was farming. Only one farmer up at Tenderfield, Dick and Dora, Rochford, um, uh, this Irish couple, they were the only ones farming, um, you know, garlic in Australia. And then and then the makers, you know, there was hardly anyone thinking about value adding locally. You know, we were all relied on these big multinational companies that were either making our jams or our preserves or our chutneys or, or whatever else. Um, now it's just, you know, there have been literally thousands of local jam makers and, and chutney makers and sauerkraut. And um, and obviously that that whole side of things wasn't even, you know, I, I wouldn't know the percentage of people who are eating really, really great fermented foods. But, you know, we've got six, kitchen tenants, tenants in the kitchen, who all do fermented foods in, in one shape um, or form. So it's, it's, it's just super exciting where, um, where the food system's at um, these days. Mm. And I think that you quoted that you're paying your farmers about four times the amount they would get from the big chains. How is that possible? 
Um, because of the flat price, so it's uh, it varies. Like I just worked out the other day that our strawberry grower, um, we're paying her eleven times what she would be getting from the supermarkets, and still we sell out of her strawberries. I mean, it's it's difficult to explain, but it's also simple at the same time. Um, that when you have, uh, you know, just say to the farmer, you know, you decide the price, you figure out what it is, and then we just add our true costs, you know, so whatever it costs to pack. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A dot org dot A-U or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.